My book, The Spirit of Work, Timeless Wisdom, Current Realities, is now published. By interweaving science, business, and sacred texts from the world's great spiritual traditions, The Spirit of Work offers a high-level but approachable way to view and structure work from individual community and institutional perspectives. As part of the book's reach and outreach, I will be adding some solo podcasts and interviews with authors who write to build healthy workplaces to give you a taste of how the book's concepts can enhance your workplace experience. To get to the Spirit of Work links and purchase from online stores directly, click on the online store of your choice from my website, which is shiftworkplace.com slash the spirit of work. Make sure you put hyphens in between the words the spirit of work to ensure the correct URL comes up. So that's shiftworkplace.com slash the spirit of work with hyphens. And that's how you'll get to your goal. Looking forward to your feedback. Hello, Culture and Leadership Connections podcast listeners. Today, I am very excited to present to you Mark Menukas, who is the managing partner at Co-Creation and has been helping organizations transform their business performance for over 15 years. His work has taken him around the world and allowed him to explore all kinds of industries, manufacturing, technology, travel and logistics, government, and financial services. What Mark has discovered is that despite the uniqueness and special nature of each company and industry, Human beings are the core of any organization. How people show up, communicate, problem solve, and lead determine how large the gap is between strategy and execution. Mark, I'm very interested in diving into this. It's a philosophy that's close to my heart. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Marie. It's good to be here. Tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do from a more personal perspective. Yeah, so like you mentioned uh, in the bio, for the last 15 years, I've been working on transformation uh, you know, topics with organizations. I started my career as an engineer and a Navy officer. And so I, I had a good mix of you know, leadership experience, but also was taught in school that you know, humans weren't really part of the equation. And from the Navy, I went to work in management consulting, where I use a lot of my engineering expertise to design you know, transformation programs in organizations. But I've learned over time how important the human dimension is. I would come back to clients after six or 12 months and see how despite all these brilliant ideas that myself and my teams were coming up with, a lot of these programs didn't stick. And you know, I, I had to sort of learn or relearn over time just how important the human dimension is to creating any real transformation in organizations. And so that's what my professional life is all about now. I'm dedicated to really helping individual leaders and teams and whole organizations really connect to the human part of what it is they're trying to do and create real change from the inside out, not just impose it from the outside in. So, you know, helping people see their limiting mindsets and work through those is my professional passion. And I think it, it has a big impact on people's lives and on the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is important for people to be able to see that from the perspective of someone who can help them stand outside of themselves a bit, right? Because when you're close to it, you don't see it. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the, the benefit of, of having you know an advisor or a coach or facilitator. It's not about the answers that I have. It's kind of holding up the mirror to help people see what's going on and themselves see it in a different way that's beneficial for them. Mm-hmm. So before you were an engineer and, and you were in the Navy, 
you had a life and you were younger. So can you share a couple of incidents from your childhood that you think made you into the person you are today? Like any kid growing up, I probably had, uh, you know, some very positive experiences, but also some challenging ones. I'll, you know, let me pick a, a challenging one. As a kid, I struggled to fit in. In particular, I remember a very distinct situation when I was in junior high school and in this blue collar Connecticut town where I grew up. As a boy, you know, you were really celebrated if you did well in sports. And I love baseball and I thought I was good at it. And I tried out for the junior high school baseball team. And the day after the tryouts, I ran into the school and I ran up to the locker room door, fully expecting my name to be there on the door. And my name wasn't on the list. You know, I, I didn't make the team and all my friends had made the team and they're high-fiving and that experience and ones like them uh, growing up really stuck with me. And I decided from that day that I wasn't going to be left off any other lists. And so my, the way, the way I dealt with that as a kid was I, I really became hyper-competitive and I started to view everything in life as a, a win-lose proposition. Either you're winning and you're going to be accepted and celebrated or you're losing and you're going to be you know, left off that list and you're going to feel hurt and like you don't belong. And so that carried you know, through a lot of my life where I competed really hard in other sports that I can do well at. And I got into college on a, a scholarship for golf and I competed like crazy in college and got great grades and finished near the top of my class. And then I competed when I was in the Navy to get promotions and medals. And I competed to get into the, you know, one of the best consulting firms when I got out of the Navy and I was running, 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 trying to compete like this. And I was never really seeing clearly the downside of that orientation to life. And so I was leaving this trail of sort of, you know, destruction, uh, both in my personal life and my professional life. And eventually it, it caught up with me. I did experience a point in my life where I was working at a larger consulting firm and I was just deeply unhappy, very stressed out, wasn't performing really well. And I had a crisis uh, of sorts in my uh, professional and personal life. And I really had to look at this competitive pattern that I had developed, but it, it all goes back to my childhood and, you know, my, that feeling of, you know, not being accepted and sort of being left out yeah. uh, for a variety of reasons. You know, I was listening to a documentary a, a couple of weeks ago they were talking about the effect of rejection on the brain. Mm. And when people are, you know, left off a list or they're, you know, they're rejected, I mean, it's part of you developing your character, but it also has like a mini trauma effect on the brain in the same way that you would recognize normally as being traumatic would have. So, you know, if someone beat you up or if you'd experienced, you know, that an accident, being rejected has the same level of impact. I can see that. And you felt that. I mean, without knowing how to articulate it, but you felt it and you thought, hey, I'm going to get rid of opportunities to be rejected. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Right. That's the way I dealt with it. And, you know, when I share stories like that with other people, they have similar experiences, but, they, you know, in their life, they also chose to deal with it differently. You know, I became hyper competitive myself, but I know other people who, you know, they either become more controlling or sometimes they really work extra hard to seek approval from other people. So it's interesting how, you know, similar experiences can lead to such different patterns of behavior. Mm -hmm. But I can see that fear that, you know, the experience of rejection can really hit you hard. And even mm -hmm. for someone like me who had what was largely a very positive childhood, you know, I had great supportive parents and, you know, some good friends and, you know, generally a, a positive environment, but, you know, that I, I still, you know, came out of my childhood with some challenging patterns as well, just based on how I interpreted and experienced some of those rejections that I had. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's something that everybody has to struggle with, right? How do you deal with the fact that you're not always on the list? 
So I'm glad that you brought that up. And then when you started to make some changes in your life, what did you notice? I mean, what did you do differently? How has that affected you now? That's part of why I am doing the work that I do. You know, I'm, I tell people in some of the workshops that I run that I'm, I'm not really a touchy-feely guy. If you look at my background, engineering, Navy, and all this other stuff, it's not obvious that I would be doing work that's really human-focused and, you know, this deep sort of mindset transformation level. But the way it happened for me is I actually was had the opportunity to jump into a workshop where um, it was at a client, I was doing some of the more technical stuff and somebody else was running these culture workshops. And I thought this guy was going to come in and mess up all the great work that I was doing. And so I was really skeptical, but I went into this mindset workshop uh, just to check in on him. And in that workshop, I started to, you know, that mirror was held up for me. And I started to see, you know, more clearly how this, uh, this hyper-competitive know-it-all orientation to life was helping me in some ways, but it was really not helping me in, in many other ways. And I saw the power of doing that, not only for me as an individual, but also how this process of investigating mindsets could help teams be more successful. And it was also that missing piece of organizational transformation I reflected on, you know, come back to clients and see that the programs had just dissipated. That's largely because the mindsets of the people in the organization were never really looked at or people weren't being invited to look at their their own mindsets. And so it became a missing piece of that systems change puzzle that I was working in. So that workshop sort of created this whole chain of events that have led me to the point today where we're now working on these mindsets at a deep level with all kinds of organizations. Mm-hmm. And heart sets, I hope. Absolutely. Yeah. I say mindsets, but it, it really is inviting people to reflect on how they're showing up in life. So it's not <laughs> just about your thoughts, although we say mindsets, but it really is how how are you showing up with heart? You know, are you in touch with your emotions? Are you able to express them in you know effective ways that create a real dialogue with other people and create trust? Are you willing to be vulnerable and open up to uh, you know what's going on for you in order to create more powerful learning moments with your colleagues? So all this stuff is so important and it's mm-hmm. all interlinked. Mm-hmm. So what about from your Atlas? You started with that incident of being in junior high. Is there something that was earlier or something that was later that could be another incident you could share? Yeah. I think, you know, another thing that's somewhat linked to being left off the list is, uh, you know, I reflect on growing up. I had a brother who I'm still very close to. Uh, We're a year and a half apart, but I was the older brother. And by the age of nine or so, he was the bigger brother, physically bigger. And that always really bothered me. Because people would think that my younger brother was the older one and, you know, they sort of celebrated him for his physical prowess and presence. And, you know, me as a skinnier kid, you know, I struggled to, in my mind, find acceptance from other people, family members and and friends uh, because of that comparison. And so I became hyper aware of how, you know, I I compared not only to my brother, but to other people out there in the world. And I I think that fed into this hyper competitive know-it-all orientation to the world where I found if if I could win, if I could be better than other people, then they can't tell me that I'm, I'm not good enough because I'm not as physically bigger as, as some other people. So that was, I think, embedded in the, my psyche uh, growing up as well when I reflect back on it. Yeah. It's about how you perform, not who you really are. Yeah. 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 Performance was synonymous with worth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now everybody's born into groups and the whole premise of this podcast is that we're affected by those groups mm-hmm. and we affect the groups. 
So it's only when you get a little bit older that you can start to reflect on how did those groups affect me that I was born into? You're born to, into a nation. You're born into a specific geographical place. There's usually a language, mm. peer group, race, religion, culture, exposure to various different things that might, you know, you've been born into a group like for example, people that are that are born into sports culture or music culture, all of those things, you, you didn't choose it. You just happened to be born into that environment. So what are one or two groups that stand out for you for having affected you and your development of character and leadership and culture? Yeah, I would reflect on my parents. They come from very different backgrounds. So on my dad's side, I'm actually first generation American. I, you know, I'm Reflecting on the, you know, the Ukrainian crisis, uh, my dad's family was from Lithuania, so in mm-hmm. Eastern Europe, and my grandfather was, uh, you know, basically had to flee the country, uh, Lithuania, in the middle of the night because, um, you know, he was on Stalin's list, and so my family fled, uh, you know, through Europe, and after World War II, were able to come over to the U.S. But my dad was born overseas in a, a refugee camp during World War II. That would very much affect that you have to perform to survive, wouldn't it? Yeah, that was part of it. And, you know, his dad, my dad's dad, uh, died when he was only 12 years old. And he was, you know, raised by his his mother, who was actually a really accomplished musician. She was a concert pianist. But being in the United States, obviously, you know, she was disconnected from her family, you know, in Eastern Europe, who was, uh, you know, I think they were fairly well off. But, uh, you know, in the U.S., they had to lift themselves up from their their bootstraps. So I think life was hard for my dad. So from my dad, I, I think I, I picked up, you know, one, this sense of life can be really hard, but if you, if you work hard enough, things are going to work out. You know, the world is full of possibility. You're a capable person. If you really just, you know, apply yourself and put your nose down and, and do that. My dad is also, uh, you know, he's an engineer and he's not a very emotive guy. So I think I picked up this idea that as a man in the world, you don't share your emotions. You just put your head down and you just get stuff done. And that's kind of the background or experience that I had from him. And from my mom, you know, she came from more of a, a blue collar background. Um, and was she also from Lithuania? No, my mom is of Italian and Irish roots, but she's probably been in the U.S. for a few generations. But blue collar workers, you know, her dad, my grandfather was a, a firefighter. So from my mom's side, I got this sense of service and uh, work hard, but also don't take life too seriously either. So my mother compared my dad was much more emotive and, you know, she's boisterous and super extroverted. And so I think I get some of that from my mom. But I, I think growing up, I also found, you know, my dad's way in the world to be more appealing, uh, you know, as a boy trying to figure out how to be a man in the world. Well, we tend to copy the gender that we share with the parent. So that was your family. And that that sense also of being born to an immigrant father and a mother who'd been in the United States for a while, that probably Mm -hmm. affected you too, because you had two different kind of worldviews and experiences. Yeah, absolutely. What about faith, ethnicity, language? Did, Did your parents speak any of their languages at home? Were you conscious of being white? Like any of that stuff? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, when I reflect back on it, particularly in today's culture where we are more, uh, you know, tuned, at least I've become more tuned to, you know, racial issues. I think I I had a very privileged background in many ways. Uh, You know, my parents, well, my dad had a, you know, 
pull himself up by his bootstraps. As a kid, he also had a lot of really positive breaks in life. You know, he was able to get a scholarship to college and, you know, ended up getting a good job as an engineer. And so I benefited from that, you know, after his generation. But I wasn't conscious of race or, you know, that sort of privilege growing up. I think in <laughs> retrospect, I'm like, wow, you know, I really did have a lot of uh, positive breaks and, you know, barriers removed from me that other people probably don't experience, certainly don't experience in their own life, you know, based mm-hmm. on, on their own backgrounds. In terms of faith, I was raised Roman Catholic, but I, I wouldn't, wouldn't say I'm a deeply religious person. I do, you know, routinely grapple with and ask, you know, some big spiritual questions about, you know, the meaning of life and who are you really and, and things like that. So I think the, you know, faith background that I, I have probably has helped me ask some of those questions throughout my life, but I've, you know, my spirituality has evolved in different ways, you know, from what what it was when I was uh, just growing up. Well, you would expect that with anything in your life, right? Yeah. That you would evolve. If you don't, that's the scary part. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I suspect yeah. you may also have been born into more of an engineering culture. Oftentimes you don't say that, but when there's a strong profession in a family, that also really affects the way people think and act. You mentioned a little bit saying your father wasn't very emotional, but there's a lot of qualities to being an engineer that I think become part of who you are. Absolutely. I wanted to be like my dad uh, in a professional sense. And so I did, I was more tuned to math and science, uh, you know, as a kid growing up, I spent more time and energy on, on those subjects in school, as opposed to, you know, perhaps more artistic topics or writing. And I think that's cut both ways in my life. I think in, in some ways I got really taken in by the idea that there's one right answer to the problems in the world. And you know that's good when you're in school and you can get the answer and make the teacher happy. But in life, I found that to be a very limiting place to be. And I've since gotten much deeper now into other topics that I wasn't quite as attuned to as a kid. So I value my engineering background, but I've also discovered the limitations of it and have since branched out into uh, many other topics. Mm-hmm. There may well be a right answer to something, but there's usually multiple ways. For example, I'm thinking of parents that would be giving advice to a child. Uh, you know, for example, they might say, well, stand up to a bully. Okay, that could be the right answer. Mm-hmm. Stand up to a bully. But how do you get there? And that's the same thing with what's happening right now with the war against Ukraine. People are saying, oh, you know, there's bullying going on. The world needs to stand up to the bully. That may be the right answer, but getting there doesn't seem that easy. Execution is not just from A to B. And that's kind of what you were talking about earlier in in your bio too, that you may know that there's a direction to go in or that sometimes you can see that somebody's making a drastic, horrific mistake that's going to completely impact their lives forever. And you know they should not do that. (laughs) Doesn't mean that they're going to go that route or where you want them to be is not necessarily where they want to be and or it may take a different route. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's important that people discover for themselves what choices they're really willing to make. A change only comes when people make the choice for themselves. When my oldest daughter was in high school, she was pretty good at math, but she always found really innovative ways to get to the way she was supposed to go. She didn't follow the rules. Mm. She got the right answers all the time, but always lost marks on show your work because she came up with her own way to get there. And oftentimes when I thought when she was growing up, um, you know, I should really do this. And the answer was right. But the way to get there that I was trying to influence her towards was totally wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And in retrospect, I think the teachers that were marking her master said, wow, who would have thought you could come up with 100% using these strategies that are not what we know? I mean, shouldn't that count for something instead of being punished for that? (laughs) 
Absolutely. But But it's funny how we're conditioned by the educational system to do things in a certain way and to try to make our teachers right now. There's probably a few students like your daughter who bucked the system and probably weren't as conditioned by the the system, which is probably a beautiful thing. But I think there's a lot of people like myself who probably really kind of got conditioned quite a bit by that system and only in retrospect have discovered how limiting that conditioning can be. Yeah. I think the desire to be right can be a personality trait too, which I'm going to get to in a minute, but groups you've chosen to belong to as you grew up, what's influenced you in terms of, you say, your culture and your leadership style? You know, I chose to join the Navy basically when I was 17, so I was still pretty young. Uh, I went to the, the Naval Academy and got immersed quite quickly into a whole new way of thinking and just showing up in the world. So that was by choice and certainly formed a lot of how I see the world. You know, we already did mention engineering uh, as well. I chose to study engineering both in undergraduate as well as uh, graduate school. And so that was part of it. You know, one wrinkle there is one thing I studied in graduate school. I chose to go from the Naval Academy to UC Berkeley and just have a completely different experience than the, the regimented Navy experience. I chose to study human factors in engineering. And so I was already quite curious about how the human dimension intersects with these technical systems. So that was another very formative experience for me. And then another choice I made when I was still fairly young was to get out of the Navy and move to management consulting and particular McKinsey & Company, which has a very strong culture and a very strong way of thinking about problems and problem solving. So that was uh, quite formative as well. Hmm. Yeah. Each of those choices that you made had very distinct cultures around them and structures that are visible. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So how has that influenced you? You know, the Navy... Obviously, it's, it can be a very regimented place, but I also learned a lot of positive things about leadership. You know, the idea of taking care of your people was something that really stuck with me in my life, that it's not about, you know, seeing people as objects or tools to be used, but they're the people you work with are paramount. And taking care of them means you'll ultimately, as a team, thrive and, and achieve the mission. So that was a big formative experience or idea. Mm-hmm. You know, I mentioned in you know my engineering training just that idea, the, the human elements. Uh, you know, the, the idea that engineering systems don't fail because of the engineering most of the time they actually fail because of human or cultural reasons, and that the root cause of you know uh, underperformance is at that human dimension. That's that was a real formative idea for me. And then, you know, with McKinsey, I think there was uh, just this idea that any problem in the world can be analyzed and cut up and looked at and then put back together again with some new sort of insight. Just the, the idea that if you really put your mind to something and think about it in the right way and frame it in the right way, you can come up with an insight that creates new movement that wasn't possible before. So just the idea that it is possible and let's just put our heads together and figure it out was a big concept that I still carry today. Mm-hmm. That was great. I wanted to ask you about temperament and personality too. And I want to come back to this thing about wanting to be right. And um, I have all my life wanted to be right, but I didn't recognize that that's what it was. <laughs> mm. I kept wondering why I was running into roadblocks with other people until I realized, hey, me wanting to be right and them wanting to be right ends up being a conflict or it ends up them be feeling bulldozed over. And I initially felt really ashamed of this. I'm thinking, oh, you know, how come I can't just be more accepting and tolerant? And why do I have to be right? Like, what is with this right thing? And then I started to come up with an idea that I could say, well, you know what? I can't always be right. I'm just going to celebrate the times that I end up being right by default and just go, woohoo, I was right once. Out of 10 times, I ended up being right once. Yes. 
<laughs> lost my desire to control the rightness of any other situation as a result, because I could experience it knowing that the time when I would be right would just come be coming around the corner. I, I didn't have to control it. <laughs> And that really helps with my relationships with other people. So I'd say this wanting to be right is something that seems to be a trait in my family, but learning to mitigate it was something that was part of my personality that has now become much more who I am than insisting on controlling a situation. So I'm wondering for you, what would you say you born into uh, temperament wise and other things that you've evolved through your personality? Yeah, your story resonates quite a bit with me. I think for me, it was this win-lose paradigm for most of my life. And I, I didn't see it very clearly for a while, you know, but I would have strained relationships and I would argue with people, but I would just feel so righteous at the time. And I'd just be like, they just don't see it, you know, and I just would get frustrated with people and argue with them. And yeah, it, it came from this sense that I had to win because that was the right thing to do. And that's how I was going to, you know, be accepted and belong and be successful in the world and get promotions and find great friends and keep great friends. And I wasn't seeing the, the paradoxes in, in all of that for a long time. But for me, it's, you know, I started to more clearly see how that mindset and that orientation was driving this argumentative style with a lot of people. And so I've since realized that I was actually being quite self-oriented. And, you know, that win-lose orientation. And now I can still have strong point of views, but I can integrate them with other people's points of views. And it's not about winning or losing. It's about how can I contribute to this situation and get really curious about what other people can contribute so we can contribute together in whatever is going on. And so I find now with this new orientation, rather than trying to win or be better than other people, I'm able to engage people in a much healthier, creative interchange. And so that's working much better for me. I can't say I do it super great all the time. I think there are times when I do feel stressed and perhaps default to that, that older style, but I do believe I'm much more effective in creating better conversations with people and creating with people than I was in the past. It sounds like you went from being self-absorbed and not noticing people and things around you to being self-aware and other aware. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah. And you became more aware of your own processes and start to be curious about what other people's were. And then you became more other aware and that discovered, that helped you to lead to more self-awareness and then that led to more other awareness. And then you are probably as a result, more balanced and showing more wisdom in your decision-making. Would but you say is, you're, yeah. more, you're more wise in your decision-making at this point? I'd like to believe I am. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I listen you know, better to you know what's going on. And I think as a result, um, I think the wisdom comes because I'm better able to understand where other people are coming from and to integrate their points of view and to not and feel to like that, I'm giving something up as, yeah. as a result of that. Right. That you're a part and they're a part. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So can you recall a time that you became aware that your understanding of the world was in fact cultural and not just normal. And that can be as a result of a conversation, or it can be that you travel to another country and you realize that the way people did things is not the way you do things. I had a really interesting story from a colleague named Lionel Laroche, who said that he had such a hard time understanding that he's from France. And it's like, you know, you're supposed to eat dinner at 8 p.m. Like that's when you're supposed to eat dinner. And that's what people do. Huh. And he went right. to so many other places where maybe somebody cooked in the beginning of the day and people would eat when they were hungry and they never ate dinner together or dinner, period. Uh, and others where people ate dinner at four or they ate dinner at midnight or they ate dinner on shifts. And he was like, whoa, that's a cultural thing. You know, like uh -huh. that's what the French do. Who knew? 
<laughs> Has I like that, that. Any, anything like that been a part of your experience? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, um, you know, there's a couple of big events in my life. I think when I first joined the Navy and, you know, went through boot camp, that was one of those experiences where up till then I was a young 17-year-old kid. I'd only known the more or less the town that I grew up in and Connecticut and you know lived a pretty insulated life. And now boom, all of a sudden I'm in this huge new culture with radically different norms and ways of working and communicating and treating each other and this hierarchy now and the uniform. So that was just a, a, a very big culture shock, you know, where I started to see the world in a different way and realized that, wow, like, you know, the culture you grew up in can be very different than a culture you step into. Another example is when I was in the Navy and I first got deployed to the Middle East and I was in Kuwait uh, shortly before the Iraq invasion. And, you know, that was a period of time after 9-11 when a lot of people, myself included, didn't really understand the culture in the Middle East. And so to be over there now working with, you know, people in the Middle East and just being aware of all, you know, the different customs that they had and, you know, different language, just the different way they, you know, use the bathroom and the different way, you know, customs they had around how they ate and just their, their different worldviews was great. And it also got me to become more aware of how, as an American, how ignorant, you know, I was about you know, how other people uh, lived and just how they, they view the world and that they weren't so scary. You know, once you get to meet people at an individual level, they're no longer this abstract other, you know, in a, a big group, they're actually a human being. And that was uh, That'd a, be a great awareness for yeah. every American to have, but it's not only Americans who are ethnocentric. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, every, yeah. everybody yeah. thinks their way of doing things is the best way. And um, yeah. So, but it is helpful to realize that other people yeah. have evolved through the same life experiences and emerged with different patterns. And it's interesting, yeah. you know, yeah. it's, it's not something to be afraid of. It's interesting, something to be curious about. Absolutely. You know, there's different patterns, different cultures, yet there's also uh, a shared humanity. You know, we, the same, we experience similar joys and fears and doubts and all that uh, human stuff. And exactly. I think that's an important insight. Well. Yeah, because that's how we create bonds. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Those are great examples and nice contrasting examples too. I really like them. So we're getting closer to the end of the interview. And I always like to ask people the question, if somebody hires you for something, what would bring out the best in Mark? What creates an environment where you can truly be yourself? I find I am at my best when I feel embraced by other people. And, you know, where people really welcome my point of view, they don't have to agree with me, but, you know, where they're interested to hear what I have to say and, you know, are interested to share what's on their, their mind as well. So a degree of just open uh, communication and candor is what actually gets me to let my guard down and, and helps me show up at my best. Mm -hmm. So this is your soapbox moment. What would you like to promote? I would love to promote one of the things that uh, my business partner and I did recently is we wrote a book. Um, the title of it is Unfear, and it is a distillation of a lot of the work that we've been doing with organizations and continue to do on you know this human dimension. And we describe the way to create performance in organizations isn't from the outside in, but it's really from the inside out. You have to start with the individual mindsets and that heart place as an individual. And people need to get to a point of choice about how they want to show up. And then that 
influences how teams work together and, and how they communicate. And then that influences how organizations ultimately perform. And so that's what the book is about. And we talk about fear, you know, the title is unfear, but we say fear is neither a good thing or a bad thing. Sometimes people see it as it's a good thing. We use it to drive results or it's a bad thing. We need to suppress it and eliminate it. We kind of throw that idea out and say, that's really not realistic for us as human beings. Fear just is. And really the, the key is to relate to fear in a different way. If you can see fear as a cue for learning and growth, you can create this really powerful inside out transformation and improve both performance and human well-being at the same time. And so I would love for people to go out and, and read the book if they're interested and give us a call if that sort of work interests you. I love that idea of unfear. I mean, emotions are there as a barometer. Yeah. Every emotion is useful. It's what you do with it and how you respond to it that makes the difference later. But I really like this idea of just, you know, recognizing fear and accepting the gift that it has to give without being controlled by it. Yeah, love that. We can be fearful and it doesn't have to control us. We can be uncertain and it doesn't have to control us. We can just recognize it and use that to say, well, maybe other people are feeling this same fear. Maybe that's why we aren't moving forward in this part, in this way in our organization. Yeah. It can be such an empowering thing to say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of times people, myself included in my past, you know, have avoided that phrase, but it's actually really, it's an act of empowerment and it's a step in the right direction just to say, look, I don't know. Let's figure this out. It allows people a space to be able to contribute an idea. Whereas if you already know, where's the room for anyone else to contribute anything? Yeah. Exactly. I'm really looking forward to reading the book. It sounds like it's a really important contribution to the discipline. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I would love to, to chat more about how you receive it and what thoughts it sparks for you, right? And you are going to get that opportunity because I'm starting an author's club. <laughs> awesome. Beautiful. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah. Where we're going to do some interviews that just with authors about their business books and why they chose to do what they're they're doing with those books and what motivated them. I think it's going to make for some great conversations. Sounds good. Looking forward to that. So you're going to be in. You're in the in group already. You're on the list, Mark. Yes. I made the list. <laughs> All right. Yes, Marie. You <laughs> didn't even ask and you didn't have to I compete did, yeah. for it. You're it just still feels good to make the list. I, but I you made the yeah. list. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Very good. Great. Well, um, is there anything else you'd like to say? No, I just appreciate the um, just the really thoughtful questions, uh, Marie, and just the uh, the opportunity to reflect on on my own life. And I I hope it, it helps other people reflect on theirs as well. Thank, Thank you, you for accepting to be on the podcast and for sharing your story and and your insights. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Likewise, thank you. Mark Minukas has been working in business transformation for results by joining people skills and the art of executing tasks and projects. Although his engineering and Navy training didn't prepare him for his current role, he discovered through professional experience that he should pay attention to the human dimension of business and join it with the technical. By overcoming limiting mindsets and embracing new ways of seeing oneself in relationship to others and to work, he learned to join the two skill sets into one. His professional journey demonstrates his transformation from a hyper-competitive mentality leaving a trail of destruction to a collaborative and self-compassionate mentality, providing him and those around him with the most satisfying personal and business results yet. Thank you for listening and for sharing this episode with a friend. May culture and leadership connections continue to guide and inspire your day. Hey, podcast listeners, help us reach our goal of a thousand downloads per episode by going to followthepodcast.com 
slash culture and leadership. That's followthepodcast.com slash culture and leadership. If you type that into your browser and you use the and sign, not the word and culture and leadership, it will automatically adjust to your phone and then you can follow and rate. So followthepodcast.com slash culture and leadership. Thanks in advance for following and for reviewing.